Welcome to your Active Stack Brief podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week we talk about the AI Act with someone that has played a key role behind the scenes. For an overview on all things for an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is your Active Stack Brief podcast. Today I'm joined by Andrea Renda, one of the um, people that have contributed the most to shape the AI Act behind the scene and a senior researcher at CEPS, the think tank. Hello, Andrea. Hello, Luca. And hello to all our listeners. Uh, so, Andrea, you have been involved in the AI Act since the very conception. At, um, you contributed to the impact assessment. Um, you were also involved in talking to policymakers about the, the technical aspects. What is your view on this legislation? What are the most important aspects in your view? Well, the AI Act has taken uh, quite a few years to... Um, design and to uh, to shape, if you wish. Um, not many, you know, according to the typical standards of the European Union, because if you think that in 2017, the European Parliament was still thinking of giving electronic personality to smart autonomous robots, and had no intention to fully place on humans the responsibility for the decision to develop and deploy artificial intelligence in the market. If you look at what is happening today, if you look at the uh, work of the European Parliament, the Commission and the Council, I think uh, light years uh, of, you know, we, we've, we've gone uh, uh, really, really to great lengths. And the EU institutions have shown to be uh, learning institutions, just like the learning systems that they try to regulate. Uh, I have been involved early on in the uh, work of the high-level expert group on AI when we defined the ethics guidelines for trustworthy AI. I have then led the impact assessment study that shaped the first version of the AI Act in uh, April 2021. Uh, there, the first key decisions were taken. The idea that this should be a risk-based uh, type of legislation, so it would contain a classification of AI applications based on the level of risk that they are expected to entail for society. Uh, and there also would be a, a type of legislation nested in previous EU legislation, and in particular in the new legislating framework on product safety, what we call the CE marking, right? That whenever possible, whenever AI is embedded in a product that has to undergo a conformity assessment before being placed on the market, that this conformity assessment would also include the AI part. Uh, these were just early decisions. Um, I think when the AI Act finally saw the light in April 2021, some additional decisions that are, in my opinion, uh, groundbreaking were taken. Uh, the first is that in looking for the level of risk in AI applications, the European Commission, for the first time ever uh, at, uh, at the global level, um, identified a number of applications that are simply too risky to be allowed. And so that there is a first identification, and this list has become bigger with the work of the European Parliament, or is likely to become bigger in the final version of the AI Act, of some types of AI uses that are simply uh, too risky, unacceptably risky for our society, and so they should be prohibited. Uh, this is important also because um, 
everywhere around the world, you know, uh, normally there are always lobbies calling for uh, uh, avoiding stifling innovation, staying away from uh, interfering with the development of AI and so on and so forth. And I think that was a courageous decision to identify applications such as social credit scoring, uh, massive manipulation of uh, behavior, uh, and now perhaps in the future also forms of uh, predictive policing, even uh, depending on how the discussion goes, use of real-time biometric uh, information in uh, public places, um, that these are uses that are not allowed because we don't know how to sufficiently mitigate the risks. Now, this is important, uh, and it's coupled with an identification of those risks, of those AI users that are considered to be risky or high risk, and thereby uh, should be subject to regulation but not prohibited. These are very important decisions, and they are the result of an even bigger decision that was taken at the very beginning, that the EU would not try to regulate AI, but they would try to regulate AI uses or applications of AI that create too much risk for society. A decision that is controversial, but at the same time, I'm happy to elaborate further on it, but at the same time, it's a decision that is in line with uh, the way in which many regulators and international organizations are trying to approach AI around the world. Right. So that's a very insightful view on, on where the AI Act is coming from. What about where it's going? Because this is a technology that now it's moving really fast. Um, we see new generations of, of very powerful language models being released every six months. Um, how can you build enough flexibility for the categories you mentioned, prohibited uh, applications and high-risk applications to keep up with these developments? Well, Luca, uh, the the attempt to be prescriptive in a, in a piece of legislation uh, on a subject matter that constantly changes is a preposterous, a preposterous attempt, if you wish. It's frustrating because it's like riding on the sand, right? Uh, the, um, uh, if you say, these are the high-risk applications, and if we want to change that list, it's going to take another five years to go through European Commission, Parliament, and Council, and then transposition in member states' applications and enforcement, um, you know, that is uh, doomed to be always late, and not slightly late, massively late. So what you have to do in terms of legislative techniques, you have to try to uh, specify the principles of responsible AI development, the overall functioning and the governance that uh, um, will shape the implementation of this legislation going forward. For example, the creation of an AI office with sufficient powers to change the composition of those lists of prohibited or risky AI applications, and perhaps give interpretive guidance to the rest of the market as the market evolves um, on how uh, you know mitigating techniques uh, evolving for specific risks, and so how market players should behave in a way that is considered to be broadly compliant with the legislation. Uh, and you should also specify the outcomes. So the beginning and the end, whatever is in between is difficult to write in a law of, of, this, of this kind. Still, um, even with those attempts, because the AI Act in its uh, uh, original proposal uh, was principles-based, was largely outcome-based, and tried to put those lists in annexes so they could be more easily changed, still it has proven to be unfit for purpose when generative AI uh, systems, you know, the chat GPTs uh, and similar, the bards or llamas and similar uh, have reached the market uh, and uh, became widespread uh, at the end of last year. What happened? 
very simple. The AI Act focuses on uh, uses of AI uh, and so regulates or uh, introduces regulatory requirements for those providers of AI. So those players that actually place the AI uh, system for a specific use on the market or put it into service. This is how the legislation uh, goes. Uh, so what about those AI systems that have multiple uses? Uh, what about those models that are foundational or those models that are versatile, those systems that are versatile, so that potentially could do more than one thing? Uh, if someone takes them and applies them to a specific use, they'll be the providers, but they will know nothing about how the model was built. So uh, in particular, the members of the parliament, the rapporteurs uh, that had to finalize the text of the AI Act earlier this year, already in February, realized that the AI Act was not covering the case in which someone develops uh, a model that is susceptible to multiple uses and then uh, others take those uses and deploy the system on the market without having full visibility of what we call the model object, how it works, how it was trained, how many parameters and so on and so forth. So who's best positioned to assess the risk? Is it fair? Is it proportionate to regulate players that know nothing about how the model was built? If we regulate them, will they refrain from using these models? And so will this limit the diffusion of, of AI on the market? Or should we add new provisions that actually uh, uh, put place responsibility um, on uh, the developers of foundation models and in particular generative AI systems? So this was the choice. And this is why the text of the AI Act was about to be finalized in February. It was not. Uh, members of the European Parliament, the rapporteurs, took uh, uh, a little bit more time to uh, add new provisions that try to capture this phenomenon. Now, the question, coming back to your question, Luca, is what if in the attempt to finalize the text in the current trilogue between the three co-legislators, something else comes up that is not covered by the AI Act? Well, hopefully the AI Act at this stage is sufficiently uh, encompassing that it will not have to be changed for the coming years. And it can be reinterpreted and revisited on a quarterly basis by a group of experts and an AI office that can, uh, again, produce this interpretive guidance. My opinion is that this guidance would be um, international. So the AI office in the EU will need to work with other homologous institutions around the world. But at the same time, it will also be sector specific because the, risky, the riskiness of AI in healthcare and the mitigating measures for the key AI systems that are used there and the solutions that are implemented there are completely different from what happens in autonomous vehicles as opposed to, um, I don't know, education or the monitoring of workers. And so uh, we will see a deepening of this legislation, a softening of this legislation at the same time in a sense of soft law. Uh, there will have to be a lot of production of soft law to accompany the hard law that is the text of the AI Act. So this is the beginning of a long journey. I don't think, you probably agree with me, Luca, and the, and the audience will, uh, that AI is going to stay with us. And as the AI stay with us, our antennas have to be high uh, you know, and, uh, and very receptive for us to continue following its evolution in a way that is compatible with the principles and the objectives that we have uh, in our society. I want to further elaborate on this aspect of governance because it, it has not really been like the focus of discussion. Um, so before you said you, you would be in favor of a strong 
uh, AI office. At the same time, we all know the restraints on the EU budget. Um, there were initial temptations for the parliament to propose an agency, uh, but there um, there is no serious resources to, to back that up. So uh, we also have a new uh, transparency center for algorithms um, that opened up in, in the JRC in Sevilla. So realistically, what can we expect? What is like the best case scenario that the EU can put together at this stage? Well, I think the AI office cannot be um, the AI board that was originally proposed by the European Commission. That, frankly, looked like a meeting of the council, right? Mm -hmm. uh, one representative per member state. Uh, unable to really discuss uh, without the backing of an of experts, without the involvement of civil society, uh, unable to to really uh, follow the developments of AI, and so continue to write this legislation on a daily basis, if you wish, or keeping it like a living thing, a living entity. The AI office has to be big, but it doesn't have to be massive, I don't know, such as the European Medicines Agency, for example. And indeed, when I was um, uh, drafting the impact study for the AI Act that then the European Commission used to shape the AI Act's proposal, um, I actually made a couple of projections on whether the, the, the uh, governing body, let's say, would be more like what the European Data Protection uh, Board or much bigger, such as the EMA and so on and so forth. I think two things are important here. First of all, what are the functions? And if the function is to provide, to give interpretive guidance, work with sectoral regulators, involve civil society, and um, uh, receive the feedback from experts and stakeholders, I think it has to be uh, relatively big, but it can be shaped in the form of a expert group and a more effective form of what a few years ago was the AI Alliance, I meaning a, a, a living platform and a sounding board for proposals. Um, at the same time, uh, it doesn't have to be uh, formally structured with em uh, several employees, again, such as the EMA or, uh, or other big agencies uh, um, uh, in the European Union. Uh, it is important that it is expert-backed, in my opinion. Um, it is absolutely important because if you think about the costs and the benefits of creating a body like this, if you don't have a body like this, there are two things that might happen. First, a lack of legal certainty in the market, and so perhaps even a chilling effect on anyone who would like to develop AI and, and doesn't know if this is high risk or not, or whether it could be regulated or not. So lack of legal certainty could mean foregone benefits for society, and so potentially um, uh, uh, negative impacts uh, that have to be weighed against the cost of setting up the agency. And then the enforcement, adjudication at the national level, courts, uh, but mostly competent authorities uh, at the national level, they wouldn't have to multiply their efforts if there's no one that spreads legal certainty to um, uh, decide on cases, potentially sanction uh, high-risk behaviors, and this creating a very messy situation. If you wish, a little bit of a GDPR situation, although uh, some people disagree with me, but we've seen a little bit of forum shopping and also a little bit of fragmentation and heterogeneity in the implementation of this otherwise landmark piece of legislation. So we want to avoid that. We want to avoid increasing costs due to the frag legal fragmentation. We want to avoid foregone benefits due to the fact that there's a legal uncertainty spreading. Uh, we need a strong AI office. 
the AI office can also reduce costs for other agencies because it can cooperate with uh, sectoral agencies in energy, in transportation, in others, helping them incorporate the AI age into their um, legislative frameworks. And I think this reduces costs on and on. We need also a strong AI office because the EU wants to play a decisive role in the world, a prominent role in the world in the governance of AI. Without such a body, the European Commission would not be able to spread knowledge, wisdom on how to regulate AI as much as it would with a strong AI office that backs it. And I would certainly expect you to play a key role uh, there uh, in, in a As a stakeholder. <laughs> Uh, well, there, there was a joke in the parliament that those who proposed the AI office also wanted to head it. Uh, <laughs> um, so, but uh, going back to technological trends, um, what are like the macro trends that you see in the AI space? Of course, this is a very early stage, um, but it would be good to, to have your insights on, on where you think the industry is going. Well, the, the good thing about AI is that it will always be at its early in, in its early stage. Um, just like five years ago, we were saying it's in an early stage, it's in its infancy. And today we say perhaps large language models, generative AI, new forms of deep learning, um, autoregressive models, and so on, they are at an early stage. Uh, they are in their infancy. Uh, there are a couple of things that I see happening, and I think they both deserve the attention of, their, of the policymakers. The first is... Um, the development of models that require enormous compute infrastructure and by definition will be developed, well, designed and developed mostly by large tech companies. So the market is taking a, 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 a shape that is similar to what happened to the internet in its first 10 years of existence from a, a very open, neutral, end-to-end -end architecture into a platformized architecture where there are four or five players that really intermediate most of the traffic. Here in the AI space, we see four or five companies with satellite companies or affiliated companies, you know, like Hugging Face or, or OpenAI that anyway, collaborate with many of the tech giants that we know uh, or are directly massively funded by them. Um, these are the companies that will create the so-called foundational models. And the market is uh, gravitating around those foundational models with a myriad of smaller players that will use them to develop their solutions. So basically, the, the foundational models that will reach the market could be four or five will become a new speak, if you wish, uh, like, like in uh, Orwell's 1984, meaning depending on how they are shaped, most of the other products downstream that uh, uh, will be used for specific purposes will be shaped. Now, this also brings concentration. Uh, it means that uh, uh, this market will uh, uh, crystallize around a limited uh, number of companies with potential competition concerns, but also with uh, concerns about uh, the attribution and allocation of uh, value along the value chain. Because obviously, if you are one of the ones or perhaps the best company that produces a foundation model that can be used for a specific purpose, you might have limited alternatives. And so you might have to share uh, quite generously um, the added value uh, and, and the value generated by your downstream application uh, because the, your upstream player that gives you the model has stronger bargaining power. So that is one thing that I see happening. The platformization of the AI market. Uh, let's see if I'm uh, right or wrong. Uh, and the second thing that I see happening is potentially an evolution in, um, in uh, uh, the techniques that we use in AI. Uh, 
it's likely that at some point uh, the uh, continuous investments in deep learning and in learning-based mode in data-hungry models will reach uh, a peak and the, the incremental um, uh, benefits that you can get from investing enormous amounts of resources will be comparatively small. And so uh, the AI world might turn to uh, blending techniques uh, such as probabilistic programming or Bayesian programming together with uh, with deep learning uh, and uh, in a way that makes, if anything, AI systems uh, a little bit more similar to the way in which our brain works, uh, but also very complicated, just like computers today don't use just the CPUs, but use the GPUs, the TPUs, and many other types of processors, just like our brain processes information in many different ways. This I see happening. And, uh, and this is also a very good reason why the AI Act should have a definition of AI that doesn't just look at machine learning, mm -hmm. but looks at the variety of potential techniques that is as technology neutral as possible. The two main advantages are you are future proof because these things might happen. Uh, well, second reason is you are more shielded from potential gaming of the system. So I use and blend techniques not to be regulated. And actually, you have a third one. Uh, the third reason is uh, the OECD, NIST in the United States, many other players in the world are using this broad technology neutral definition of AI. If the EU does that, uh, and this is more the European Parliament's view as opposed to some of the views uh, and the positions expressed by the Council, if the EU does that, it has a greater chance of setting a standard uh, for the whole world. Right, and, and I'll make sure to invite you in a few years' time to to hold you accountable for your predictions. Um, but Luca, just... I guess you are uh, very optimistic there. So <laughs> you assume that you will not be replaced by a machine next time we do a podcast. <laughs> oh in a few yeah, years. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I assume that, it's, and you are assuming, which is good for me, that the role of experts will not be taken over by AI. I, I definitely think that, especially for uh, highly specialized jobs uh, ai won't be able to replace us but maybe i have i've a vested interest in that <laughs> um uh, just to conclude uh, andrea you're also involved in the ai code of conduct that was announced in the context of the eu us trade and technology council what can we expect from this initiative and how will this all fit uh, with the ai act and and breton's ai pact but that's a little bit of a messy uh, situation, right? Because um, the, it is clear, and it was also explicitly said by uh, Margrethe Vesteger, that um, the advent of generative AI systems and the chat GPTs of the world uh, has created a sense of urgency in legislators and policymakers, and also a, a realization that uh, waiting for the AI Act to take effect, which is probably going to happen sometimes in 2025, 2026, uh, is not possible. Something has to be done before. At the same time, the AI Act is, sub is coupled with a, a process of standardization that is supposed to define many of the key elements of these conformity assessments for AI that is not available yet. It's a process that will be completed in 2025. So um, can you really anticipate the AI Act? Um, well, this is the promise of the AI pacts, meaning well, the individual settlements and agreements with companies that produce a lot of AI systems that must start piloting potential uh, compliance with, uh, with the future AI Act. 
although we don't know what the final text will be, we don't know the contours of the conformity assessment system. So um, the, the risk is a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you wish, right? That uh, what you anticipate in, I don't know, a private agreement uh, between the commission and Google will become the actual conformity assessment system that reaches the market once the AI Act finally takes uh, effect. So it's a sort of a, a, um, a chicken and egg type of problem. Now, the, a the code of conduct was announced by Vesteger in Luleå in, in Sweden, and um, um, it is supposed, at least in the eyes of the, of the commission, to be based on the AI Act. But again, it's based on something that is not clear yet. But it anticipates at least, for example, the positions, the, the, the principles of trustworthy AI put forward by the uh, high-level expert group, some of the provisions that are uncontested in the AI Act. And at least this is what is being proposed by the EU to the US. Um, the process is supposed to last not more than a couple of months, also because the result of the work on the code of on the code of conduct that will be voluntary, so open to anyone who wants to adhere, uh, will be presented then in November at the G7 meeting in Japan, and so this takes also further political validation and so on. So the drafting will probably take a couple of months only. And um, as far as we know, there's already a two pager that has been sent by the European Commission to the US. Uh, but the process will largely be political at this stage, meaning there will not be a stakeholder consultation on the code of conduct. It's something that uh, is a result of many uh, past consultations that have been carried out and also a lot of work that has been done by the European Commission and the US in the past. This is what we know. So there will not be consultation. But uh, only a few days ago, uh, NIST uh, in the, the National Institute of Standards and Technology in the Department of Commerce in the US government uh, announced the creation of a public working group on generative AI, which is supposed to basically do the same thing as the code of conduct with the EU. So my doubt and my concern is while the EU is trying to keep this uh, closed, you know, under closed doors to speed up the process, it seems that the US is doing a different thing. So we are uh, seeing a rather paradoxical situation in which what is normally the more open institutions and the EU institutions that do quite a lot of structured stakeholder consultation, you know, for excess, you know, zeal uh, in uh, uh, speeding up the procedure, end up not talking to stakeholders, whereas in the US, everybody's doing it. So um, this is why I say it's a little bit of a messy process. I would encourage the EU institutions to at least organize an event with stakeholders on the draft version of a code of conduct after the summer break. Uh, but that is my personal position, of course. I think it would be, it would increase the level of ownership that stakeholders have for the text of this uh, code of conduct. And given that both in civil society, academia, and also in business, there are quite strong views as how this code of conduct could be shaped, I think it would be an enormous learning process. One additional step in what, as I told you, has been as a, you know, multi, multiple years of um, many years of, um, of continuous learning since the rather awkward early steps in 2017-18. Right, and indeed, if uh, if the idea is that no one owns the conversation of of what the future of AI should look like, uh, it's really unclear why this uh, sort of initiatives should take place um, behind closed doors. Thank you, Andrea Renda, senior researcher at the think tank SEPS. Thank you very much. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Extra Bitterman. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi and thank you for listening. <laughs>